Hey everybody, this is Troy, one of the pastors at First Church of the Nazarene. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It is a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus. And we are committed to join God in the remaking of all things. I pray that this sermon is a blessing and helps you join God today. If we can serve you in any way, we would love to. Please get a hold of us at lafayettenaz.org. Have a great day. Hey, good morning. Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad that you've chosen to join with us. You can be seated. You got here on the ground floor. We're starting a brand new sermon series this week called The Hills Will Die On. The Hills Will Die On. And if you have a Bible or a device, you can open up your Bible or you can power on your device. And uh, thanks, Chris. Get it to Jeremiah chapter 1. That's where we'll be in just a moment in Jeremiah chapter 1. For those of you unfamiliar, Jeremiah is a book in the Old Testament. So kind of open to the middle of your Bibles, probably the book of Psalms, and then go a little bit uh, to the right, and you'll make your way to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1. So the, the title of our series is The Hills Will Die On, and that's kind of a play on words, right? Maybe you've said that phrase before. Maybe you've said, that's not a hill worth dying on. So what you mean by that is that that issue is just not that important. It's not so vital that you're going to give a lot of time or energy or attention to it. It's not worth the cost. So because it's not a hill worth dying on, you retreat or you compromise or you walk away. Parents do this all the time. You know, you choose your battles. And often it's really wise to believe that way. Like that makes a ton of sense. It's really wise to operate that way. But there are some occasions where you have to, where we have to say, no, this absolutely is a hill worth dying on. Because it's at the heart, it's at the core of who we are and what we're trying to accomplish. So as a church, we, we do choose our battles. And there are some hills that we won't die on. So we're not going to die on the hill of strategy. Because strategy is like always changing. Some churches like die on the hill of exactly how Jesus is coming back. So they get all detailed in their understanding of the end times. And will there be a tribulation before or a tribulation after? Some churches really geek out about all that, and they'll die on that hill. The Church of the Nazarene is not going to die on that hill. This is the hill we'll die on. We believe that Jesus is coming back. We don't know how. We don't know when. We just believe he's coming back. So there are lots of things we're not going to die on, but there are some hills where we will draw the line and we'll say, yeah, we're not going to retreat from this because it's, it means too much to us. It's at the core of what we believe. And so over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about some of those hills. Now, just to like let you know, these hills that we're talking about aren't like necessary for salvation. They're, they're not essential 
for every church, but they're essential to us. So just to kind of like lay some groundwork, at our church we have a mission, and this is a corporate mission, and we've adopted this years and years and years ago. This is our mission, and our mission is to transform ordinary people into passionate followers of Jesus. And a mission is something that we're trying to accomplish together. We're trying to do this together. And really, this mission that we share together as a church really comes from the mission that Jesus has given to every single one of his followers, which is go into all the nations and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And so this is what we're doing. We share this mission together. And as a church, we have this preferred vision of the future. We, we have this preferred understanding of how we would like life to be if God were to fully get a hold of us and our world. We can see that. We call that like a vision statement. It's a unique picture for us. It's a preferred future. So for us, we say the whole thing this way. Transforming ordinary people into passionate followers of Jesus. And here's the vision. This is what we dream of. We dream of joining with God in the remaking of all things. We dream of that. And in this next few weeks, this series, we're not going to necessarily talk about those things. What we're going to talk about is the common heartbeat of our church, the collective soul, the corporate grace. I want to talk about the motivations that move us forward together to join God's mission. I want to talk about the hills that we will die on. There's a hill, the hills that we will die on. Now listen, here's the thing. We can have differences of opinion. There's a lot of humans in this room. You get two humans together, there's two different opinions. You get a lot of humans together, there's a lot of differences of opinion. We can have differences of opinion. That's totally okay. And to be 100% transparent with you, not for one second do I believe that the way that we choose to do church is the only way to do church. I'm not arrogant enough to believe that. Because there are churches across this city that believe similar things about who Jesus is and what Jesus has come to do, and they do things totally different than us. And I am their biggest cheerleader. I am cheering them on. And hopefully they're our biggest cheerleader cheering us on because I don't think every church should look the same because I think it takes all kinds of different churches to reach all kinds of different people. And what other churches do is great for them. But I want to talk about those things that God has laid at the core of our heart. I want to be clear about what God has for us. Because here's what I've learned in over 15 years of ministry. This is the the biggest piece of wisdom that I have gained. And for those of you who are note takers, you probably want to write this down. Here's the biggest thing I've learned. Everybody has an opinion about everything. Everybody has an opinion about everything. That's it. That's it. So for those of you who are aspiring pastors in the room, 
from an old seasoned veteran. Tuck that one away. Everybody has an opinion about everything, but I'm not here to talk about opinions. I'm here to talk about the kind of culture that God has created and shaped amongst us and the hills that we cannot retreat from. So here's hill number one. We won't back down from this. You, you were made. You were made for this. You were made for this. Stand with me if you would. I want to read from Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, beginning with verse 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 10. Here we go. The words, Lord, the Lord's, the words, Lord, the Lord's word came to me. Before I created you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I made you to be a prophet to the nations. Ah, Lord God, I said. I don't know how to speak. I'm only a child. And the Lord responded, don't say I'm only a child. Where I send you, you must go. What I tell you, you must say. Some of you need to hear this next verse. Don't be afraid of them. Because I'm with you to rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, touched my mouth, and said to me, I'm putting my words in your mouth. This very day, I appoint you over nations and empires to dig up and to pull down, to destroy and to demolish, to build and to plant. This is God's word for us today. You can be seated. So the word of the Lord, this passage starts out with the word of the Lord or the Lord's word. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. It came. He didn't ask for it. He didn't read a book about receiving it. He wasn't hallucinating because he pulled an all-nighter for like the final exam the next day. The word of the Lord just came showed up. And the word came, or the call came, to this boy. He is not a major world leader, not CEO material, just a boy. And when the word of the Lord came to him, it told him four four things. So to draw your attention to the first parts of that passage of Scripture again, this is what God said. Before I created you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I made you a prophet to the nations. The word came, Jeremiah didn't ask for it. It showed up into his life and it said four things. It said, I created you. I knew you. I set you apart. And I'm sending you. I created you, I knew you, I set you apart, I'm sending you. I want to talk about those. I created you. Now those words to Jeremiah apply to every single one of us. Here is something we way too often forget. God made 
you. It sounds so simplistic, but it's so profound. God made you. If you ever in your life have ever made anything, you know that when you make something, you feel a sense of ownership over that thing. You crafted it, you formed it, you built it, you created it. It doesn't matter if it's the world's ugliest thing. It's yours. You made it. Have you ever imagined that that, that one small tiny sliver of a feeling you feel extrapolated and made much larger? Maybe that's how God feels about you. If, you're, if you've ever in this room been a parent and you see that baby for the first time. No, scratch that. You see the ultrasound picture, which is just a blob. Like, like it looks like there was ink on a page and then some speckles, some white speckles. And that's the picture. And you look at the thing and you're like, it's so beautiful. Look at that thing. It's so beautiful. No, if like we had no context of what it was and we just showed it to someone and we said, hey, take a look at this. What do you think about the thing? They'd be like, what happened to your printer? What's wrong with your printer? But to a parent, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. And then later on, when the baby is born, no parent ever receives that baby and looks at it and is like, my goodness, that thing is ugly. Like, you and I know, both know, like, there are some babies born into the world that don't look very good right away. Like, like it, you know, something went wrong, cone thing, head thing going. But no parent ever feels that you think, oh, wow. And then later on, and they grow up, and they get real nasty and mean. And then that's when you say to your spouse, we made that thing? Like, But when they're fresh and beautiful, in that same way, God made you. He made you. In fact, the word that's used here for God creating and God making, that is the same word that's used to talk about what happens when a potter takes a lump of clay and puts it on a potting wheel and shapes and forms it into something. That's the image of what's happening in this passage of Scripture God made you. And God would love nothing more and nothing less than for you and I to be able to say what David said in Psalm 139. You knit me. You formed me. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You were literally knit together by God. And as I say this, I'm not arguing with science. Um, You know, I know how babies are made. Uh, We have four of them. I'm saying that at a deeper reality, God made you. He made you. And science does a great job of explaining to us what happens at the biological level, but it can't explain why or how. That's God. You and I were made by God. And what that means is that you were not and never were an accident. 
You were formed and fashioned and shaped and made by the God of the universe, the same God through whom the heavens were spoke into existence. That God spoke you and your life into existence. And you and I share a common dignity with all of humanity, and you are absolutely unique in who God made you to be. God made you to be you. So stop comparing yourself with everybody else. You've heard me preach about how comparison is the thief of joy, but comparison is also the enemy of embracing the fundamental reality that God uniquely created you. Because when we turn our attention to other people and compare our lives to them, what we're essentially doing is we're, create, we're comparing one thing that God created with another thing that God created. And God created this thing to have its own unique and useful purpose in the world. But it can't fulfill that if it's constantly looking around and comparing itself to God's other creations. We'll never be able to live out of that God-given identity until we give up trying to live someone else's God-given identity. God made you to be you. So God says to Jeremiah, and I have the audacity to believe that God is also saying to us, I created you. I made you. And then he said, I knew you. I knew you. And this is more than just saying like, hey, I was aware of you. Like when someone, you're talking to someone, they're like, hey, do you know someone else? And you're like, yeah, I'm kind of aware of them. That's not what God is saying when God is saying, I knew you. He's saying to Jeremiah, hey, before you were even born, my heart was soft towards you. I set my loving affection on you. I was tender towards you. And it reminds us that when it comes to our relationship with God, God is always the one who initiates the relationship. Always. You know, God doesn't speak this word to Jeremiah and say, hey, Jeremiah, grow up, move out of your parents' house, then I will acknowledge you. No, none of that. Before Jeremiah knew God, God knew Jeremiah, and he placed his affection on him. And it's not because of anything that Jeremiah did. It's all because of who God is. And sometimes I hear us talking about how we're pursuing God. And we say things like, hey, I finally found God. Or I came to know God. But the truth is, is that at a deeper reality, it's God who is finding us. It's God who is knowing us. It's God who is initiating that relationship with us. And then we woke up to that new reality. And this is true of humans in general. I, uh, there's a uh, psychiatrist by, from Virginia by the name of Kurt Thompson. And he has this beautiful statement. He says this. He says, we are all born into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. Let me say that again. We are born into the world looking for someone who is looking for us. And then he adds this on. And we remain in that mode of searching 
the rest of our lives. To go back to that newborn baby illustration, you know, it's like the first time that they open their eyes looking for a connection, looking for someone who's looking for them. And they recognize the voices that they've been hearing over those nine months. And what is the first thing that they see? They see someone's eyes gazing back at them. Listen, before you were born, God knew you. He was looking for you. So so God says to Jeremiah, I made you. I knew you. And then he says, I set you apart. Our lives are to be dedicated to God, to be set apart for God. This is how it always works with God. There's this pattern even in the very first pages of the Bible in creation. And so God makes something and he separates it from other things so that God can fill it. With his presence. That's how it works with us. God sets us apart. Frees us from all of these other things. So that he can fill us with his presence. We're talking about purpose now. This is about purpose. And I think if there's anything that people in our world are longing to know. It's their purpose. Like what they were made for. We've made it kind of difficult, right? So, so, you know, just to kind of like boil it down, like a fish was made to swim in the water. Right? Be free fish. Swim. I guess some fish were made to swim in aquariums at Cheddar's, and you can look at them. But most fish are, are made to swim in the water. And let's say like another fish were to get into the ear of a fish and say, hey, no, 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 listen. True freedom is being able to do whatever you want. So go up onto that shore and flop around for a while. That's, that's your purpose. But that's not freedom. Freedom has never been like doing whatever you want to do. Freedom has always been doing what you were designed to do. What you were made and intended to do. So God made you, he knew you, and he set you apart. And as he did, he gave you a purpose. And here's your purpose. You were made by God to know God, to live for God. You were made by God to know God so that you can live for God. And when when God looks at you, that's what he sees. He sees you for who you really are, made known, and set apart. But that's not how Jeremiah saw himself, and that's not how we see ourselves most of the time either. When Jeremiah held up a mirror to his life, that, all of those things I just talked about, those are not the reflection that Jeremiah saw. This is what he saw. He replies back to God, Ah, oh, Lord, I don't know how to speak. I'm just a kid. And the Lord responded, don't say I'm only a child. Where I send you, you must go. What I tell you, you must say. Don't be afraid of them because I'm with you to rescue you, declares the Lord. And so Jeremiah essentially says, I, I'm not those things. I'm not old enough. 
and I'm not skilled enough. He, and then he uses this phrase, I am only. I am only a child. And I think it's a great window into our life. Because we often don't see who we are as God sees us. We see who we are as we see us. Others might see some things about us, and God can most definitely see it, but not us. We don't see it. Instead, we walk around in our workplace, or we walk around in our school, or our house late at night, and we, we say to ourselves, I am only. I am only. I'm only this, or I'm only that. And when we do that, we're seeing ourselves through our own eyes. We're not seeing ourselves through God's eyes. There's this really great short little book. I recommend everybody who's searching for purpose in their life to read it. Guy, by, by a writer by the name of Parker Palmer. Parker Palmer wrote this book called Let Your Life Speak. And he said that sometimes we limit ourselves by living someone else's life or a life someone else thinks we ought to live rather than living the life God has for us. And we play it safe because we've bought into the lie of that four-letter word. Only. Only. I don't know how to speak. I'm only. And sometimes the life that wants to live in us may not be the life that we're currently living, and the word only will make us do that. So Jeremiah saw himself only as he saw himself, not as God saw him. And here's the reality. This way of dealing with the call of God on our lives, this kind of self-doubt, this kind of self-questioning, it happens all throughout the Bible. God calls Moses, and God says to Moses, Hey, I have this beautiful thing for you to do. And how does Moses respond? I'm only. He says, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And God says to Jonah, hey, Jonah, I got this thing, this wonderful thing for you to do. And how does Jonah reply? I'm only. And he flees. Even Mary. God says to Mary, you are going to be the mother of the Son of God. And she says, I'm only. I'm just a virgin. And so in the biblical story, we don't see anyone, when God comes to them and says to them who they, who they are, we don't really see people jumping up and down, hey, 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 over here, choose me, choose me. Often what we see is, oh, not me, not me. Because when God gives us a word or God speaks into who we are, the human reaction and hesitancy, that's normal. But Jer so Jeremiah's response is like this normal reaction to God's movement upon his life. Hey, I'm only. I'm not worthy of any of this. And that's self-questioning. And that's a part of the process. And if we don't question ourselves when we sense God leading us to do something, we probably need to ask ourselves whether that thing that God has for us is really from God or it's just from us. Because when someone is called by God, their first words are often, I can't. They usually don't stick their chest out and say, oh yeah, I can. 
And if you thought you could, you wouldn't be who God thinks you should be. Because when we think we can, maybe it's not a call, but when we think we can't, it might very well be the voice of God speaking into us. And this is what God tries to teach to Jeremiah. Hey, I made you. I knew you. I set you apart. I'm appointing you. I'm with you. I've put my words in your mouth. In other words, Jeremiah, I can. I can. Because the call of God is about God. And not so much about you. God is the big deal here. Not us. And our small estimation of ourselves, it doesn't make God small. And so God's response to Jeremiah is essentially, why are you starting all of these sentences with I? If we try to fulfill this God-sized purpose in our life with me-sized power, it's not going to work. But what God calls you to with purpose, he will always provide with power. And so we say, I'm too old, or I'm too young, or I don't have enough money, or I don't have enough education, or I really don't have enough experience, or I'm not like him, I'm not like her. Listen, if you have a heartbeat and you have the Holy Spirit, that's enough. That's enough. God can use you to do anything God wants to do because God is unlimited with his resources. And we say to God, I'm too young, but it's not about you. It's about God, and God is the ancient of days. Or we say to God, I'm not prepared. And God might say in response, I planned this out from eternity. Or we might say, I don't have enough money. And God says, I literally own everything. As long as we focus on ourselves, we're going to feel really insufficient. But when we focus on God, we start to see ourselves how God sees us. And so that's why God says to Jeremiah, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Because God knows we are... When we look at ourselves, we're repeatedly driven by fear. But when our focus or our attention is shifted to God, here's what we understand. God will be with us and God will rescue us or deliver us. So we don't have to be afraid because it's not in our own power. It's in the power of God. And so the very first hill that we will die on at this church is a firm conviction in this fundamental reality. You were made. You were made by God. He's the one who created you and formed you, and your identity should always be firmly grounded in that reality. God made you and has given to you a purpose in this world that only you can fulfill. You were made, but you just weren't made for anything. You were made for this. You were made for this. You were made to live according to the, design, to, the, to the design of your designer. You were made to fulfill the intention of the one who intentioned you. You were made for this. Never talk yourself out of it. 
Never believe that you're only or that you're not enough. The reality is none of us are enough, but God is. And God is the one who formed us and shaped us and made us and has called us into this new reality together. One of the things that um, I love about, about Lafayette and about the people who live in Lafayette, we're just ordinary people. We're ordinary people. You know, I feel like maybe if like, you're one of those urban elites or whatever, you take yourself really seriously. And you think that like, the work that you're doing in um, like your corner office or your ivory tower or whatever is like some big meaningful deal, but you're just looking at a spreadsheet all day long. But here in Lafayette, like, we don't have those illusions. We actually understand how things are made. Because a lot of us work in places where, where those, those things are made. We know what it takes to get an engine out of an assembly line. We know what it takes to move a car and to ship a car. We know that. We understand what it takes to take raw materials and turn them into aluminum or steel. Or we know how to make gears and all of those things. We, we got that. We can even make like pharmaceuticals over at, at Avonic. We, we know how these things are made. We, we get that. And I think the really beautiful thing about living and working with a community of people like this is that we also understand how a life is made. It's made in the ordinary, gritty, everyday reality. You were made. You were made for this. You know, when we begin to believe that we weren't made for this, that's when we recognize our lives drifting and straying and we start to feel like we're hopeless or that we don't have any meaning and, or that what even is this life? But then when we embrace the reality of what God has given to us and we stop looking at ourselves in the mirror and saying, I am only, and in, th- in turn we, we look at how God sees us and we, we understand like we were made for this, to, to live according to his purpose, to give him glory in all of our activities, to be an extension of his loving kingdom in every aspect and arena of our lives. We weren't made to be the savior of the whole world. That's already taken care of. We were just made to get in line with the way of God in this world. Way too often I talk to people and um, they kind of talk to me with like their head down. And um, they, they, like, belittle themselves because, like, you know, don't have a flashy education or don't have a flashy title or, or whatever it, it is. That, and every single time what I wish I could do is take them to Jeremiah 1. And I wish I could say to them, and I want to say it to you, stop believing those lies. This is what God says of you. He made you. He knew you. He set you apart and gave you a purpose. You have a divinely given purpose from God and an important role in his restoration and remaking of this world. You and I, we were made for this.